Well, good morning. So what is happiness? If you had to define it, what, what, what is happiness? And if you can define what happiness is, true happiness, if we know what it is, then how can we find it? If you, you may define it, but can you find it? And so somebody might say, well, happiness is what life is all about. Happiness is what really matters. And maybe that should be printed on our dollar bills instead of what it is. Maybe instead of in God we trust, maybe it should be in what makes us happy do we trust. So whatever you strain for in this life, whatever is your motivation for living, if it's the the purpose and the achievement and the result of happiness, then people today by and large would say, well, that's a worthy pursuit. That's something worth chasing after, right? More money will make me happy, so I'll do whatever I need to do. I'll compromise whatever I must in order to get more. Or perhaps this baby will make us unhappy. So we'll do whatever we need to. We'll make whatever choice we must in order to not be unhappy. Or I'm unhappy with my gender, so I'll do whatever I need to do in order to change that. Or I'm unhappy with the troubles in my life, so I'll use this liquid or this solid chemical in order to help me forget about my troubles. And then I will be happy, or at least I'll forget that I'm unhappy. And so you have for your taking any kingdom that you can imagine, any kingdom within your reach. And remember that we've defined kingdom as where the will of the king is carried out. So if you are king of your kingdom, then you can do whatever you want to do, right? But not without consequences. And so why is it that true, lasting, satisfying happiness is something that's so elusive? Why it's so hard to to put our finger on, to, to grab hold of? Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said this. He said, the things of this world will no more keep out trouble of spirit than a piece of paper will stop a bullet. Worldly delights are winged. And he would have said winged, by the way. They have wings and they are here for a time and for a moment and they fly away. Then he goes on to say this, hear this, to look for blessing in things external is to seek the living among the dead. As the angel told Mary concerning Christ, he is not here, he is risen. So may I say, blessedness is not here, it is risen. It is in a higher region or just just, we're just saying it's in higher ground. At a higher level. And so Jesus lovingly spoke this hard truth to those who would pursue happiness in the kingdoms of riches or power or or control because they thought that conquering these kingdoms would lead to their happiness. And Jesus himself tells us what? In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. But above all, pursue his kingdom and righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. So what is happiness? How do you define, how do you get your hands on happiness? Well, I believe the problem with happiness is the fact that it's so elusive that you, it's hard to put your hands on. It's hard to really grasp what it really is. And so it's hard to define it for us. It's not something you can touch. It's something that's totally subjective. And most people can only seem to define happiness by talking about external things that, that affect their lives, that create what they believe is Happiness, And so there was a man named Solomon who was credited with a book we know as Ecclesiastes. And so this whole book is basically a record. It's a it's a quest. It's a journey. It's an adventure for this man's happiness. And so Solomon explored vice after vice. He was a brilliant administrator. He was a great politician. He was a shrewd 
military commander, and he was a leader. And he was knowledgeable naturalist. And he was a proven lyricist. We have beautiful poetry. And he wrote songs and he wrote proverbs that are attributed to him. And he was the wealthiest king of his day. He had like 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses. That's a lot of horsepower, right? And so his annual income was 23 metric tons of gold per year. We don't think much about gold these days, but that's a bunch. That dude had a lot of Benjamins in his pocket, man. This guy was wealthy. He had 700 wives, 300 girlfriends, concubines, as the Bible calls it. That's why he needed 23 metric tons of gold per year. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 11, he writes this. After all this, he says, Yet when I reflected on everything I had accomplished and on all the effort that I had expended to accomplish it, I concluded... All these achievements and possessions are ultimately profitless. It's like chasing the wind and there is nothing gained from them on earth. So he's simply saying this. Look, I've tried everything. Everything you can imagine. I've tried it. I've experimented. I've I've explored every avenue that this world, that the devil himself, that my own body can open. I've tried it all. But under the sun, this man of great wisdom, wisdom that that second only to the Lord when he walked this earth, apart from the Lord himself. He said, under the sun, there is no lasting happiness in anything. Nothing here on this earth creates, generates, sustains lasting happiness. And so that's tragic. That's tragic, isn't it? That that's a cry of despair. And it's the cry of this age today, this present evil age, as Scripture refers to it. Jesus warns in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, Watch out and guard yourself from all types of greed, because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions or his accomplishments, his accolades. True joy, true meaning, true lasting satisfaction can't be brought from without To within. It just doesn't happen that way. And so physical things cannot touch the soul. Which is why Jesus warns against making the pursuit of these types of things our ultimate goal. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. But if I restrict my citizenship to God's kingdom, where's the happiness in that? I don't want boundaries. I don't want restrictions. I don't want borders. Happiness is secondary to blessedness. So happiness touches the heart for a moment, but blessedness touches the soul for eternity. And so this word happy or happiness is not found in the Bible. Some modern translations will use this word, but it's it's a wrong English translation. So what does the word happiness mean? Well, you might say it means joy. You might think about it in your own life. You may say, well, it's, it's a spring in your step. It's a smile on your face. It's a, you know, everything's going my way. That's what happiness is. But at the Middle English word where we get our word today from. If you break it down, it's happiness. Happiness. We get happiness from happiness. And so you've heard of mishaps, right? A, a, a mishap is something, a, a, a hap actually, is something in the old English days, it's something that happened by chance. Just a, a chance thing. Something that came along and came your way by chance or by circumstance. It was a hap. And so external things would, would, would blow your way or, and pull you this way and pull you that way. So the presence of life would come upon you and they would say, well, that's a hap. That's a half. And so, in other words, happiness is affected and effected by the way we feel. So, Jesus comes along and he says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, Blessed, not happy, blessed 
are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you falsely on account of me. So we say, well, man, Jesus, that doesn't sound like happiness. And Jesus said, I didn't say happiness. I said blessedness. And so everyone recognizes this section of Scripture as the Beatitudes. And so Beatitude is a Latin word, simply means joy or blessedness. And these are named Beatitudes because the first word in each declaration is blessed or blessed. And so to understand the the fullness of why Jesus chose this word in the original passage, we think about the original word. It's makarios. That doesn't mean anything until you understand what it means. And so the Isle of Cyprus, think about the Isle of Cyprus. We read about it throughout Scripture. It's touted as a, a beautiful island. Beautiful, exotic island, then and now. And so the ancients believed that it was so idyllic, it was so such a paradise, that they didn't have to get in a boat, and they didn't have to, to go across the Mediterranean or the Aegean Sea. They didn't have to go to Greece to get anything. They had everything they needed right there at home, right in their island. Their beautiful, blessed island. It was had everything within it. So they were self-sufficient. And this island was self-sufficient. There was fruit within it. You had, had sea for ports. You had everything within it. You had iron underneath it. There was even gold in some parts of it. And so almost like shopping at Sam's Club. So everything you need there. And they felt that they had everything, so much so, that someone christened this island, Hey Macaria, or the Blessed Island. So it's a blessed island. So Homer, the great philosopher, he also used this word, Makaria, blessed. He used this in speaking of the Greek gods. And he used it to describe the fact that they were self-sufficient. They didn't need anybody else. They had within themselves this inner state that was completely unaffected by the world of men. Because the world of mankind is subject to poverty. It's subject to weakness. It's subject to death. And the gods were above that. And so this blessedness, this makarios, was above all of this, unaffected by the wind of change, unaffected by the circumstances of life, and unaffected by the happiness that comes upon us day by day. And so what does it mean to be blessed? Well, you could be happy today, certainly. And sure, if you're, if you're blessed today, if you're in the Lord, if you're living and you're walking following the steps of Jesus and the light of the Lord, and you have the joy of the Lord within you, of course, you can be happy. But you can also be happy here today and not be blessed of the Lord. And so there's there's a difference. So the Psalms illustrates it like this. Psalm 1, beginning in verse 1. How blessed is the one who does not follow the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the assembly of scoffers Instead, he finds pleasure in, in obeying the Lord's commands. He meditates on his commands day and night. And so he's like a, a tree planted by flowing streams. It yields its fruit at the proper time and its leaves never fall off. He succeeds in everything he attempts. Not so with the wicked. 
Instead, they are like the wind-driven chaff. And for this reason, the wicked cannot withstand judgment, nor can sinners join the assembly of the godly. Certainly, the Lord guards the way of the godly, but the way of the wicked ends in destruction. So who is blessed? Who is blessed? Well, Scripture tells us it's the one who submits to God's sovereign kingdom reign for their life. That's where blessedness comes from. Well, how are they blessed? Think of the word. Because they have the all-sufficient, all-necessary rule of God for their life through which and by which they find salvation and rest for their souls. And so it's like a tree planted by water that yields its fruit in and out of season. And so the one who refuses God and refuses God's sovereign kingdom reign for their life, they're destined for destruction. And this is not a threat. It's a loving, realistic warning that God gives us. He shows us, reveals to us. And so Satan uses our own pride to blind us to our need for repentance and obedience to God. But when we realize that it's not our self-sufficiency, but our great dependency that brings joy that we're chasing, then we position ourselves to, to humble ourselves and be poor in spirit. And so these people that Jesus was speaking to on this mountainside here, this hillside in Galilee, they were looking for a kingdom. They were wanting God's kingdom to come, and they had been shut out of, of their own kingdom by this generational rebellion against God. So they lived under the, the, the oppressive hand of the Romans during this time, and, and everything they had worked for, everything they lived for, was to benefit the kingdom of Rome. And so the promises of God through the prophets now were retold generation after generation. They had grown up each generation thinking about and listening to and waiting for and anticipating these promises of God, that the kingdom of God is going to one day overthrow these evil kingdoms of men and, and that that promise seemed like a fairy tale to them because generation after generation they had buried and the promise wasn't any more tangible than it had been before the funeral. And so they had grown up as their parents. They had no rights. They had no claim to this land in which they were living. And so when Jesus comes and He proclaims that the kingdom of God is open and it's available to the weary, it's available to the hopeless. It's available to the, the hapless peasants. Then it must have seemed too good to be true. Because they had to be thinking, I'm, I'm nobody. Everything around me tells me I'm nobody. That I'm nothing here. I have nothing to offer. So how can I deserve this gracious mercy? And the psalmist reminds us of the only thing that God requires in Psalm 51 and verse 16. Certainly, you do not want a sacrifice or else I would offer it. You do not desire a burnt sacrifice. The sacrifices God desires are a humble spirit. Oh God, a humble and repentant heart you will not reject. See, there are monetary things that I may never possess. There are degrees of wealth that I may never achieve. God does not hold me to something that I cannot give. Each one of us possesses within us our own personal choice to follow Him, to surrender to Him 
That's what he requires. That's what he asks of us. Which is why I think Jesus begins this section in Matthew 5 with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom belongs to them, he said. So, although God is powerful enough, he's powerful enough to impose his will upon us. God instead, he, he, he asks for our humble acceptance of his sovereign rule. And there are various forms of pride, but perhaps the worst form is spiritual pride. And so when we approach life with the humility of a child, when we approach life helpless to survive without the the, the provisions of a loving parent, then we're positioned to receive the grace of God and to experience His kingdom come. And so think of, of blessed, as one author put it, as the applause of heaven. To be blessed is to receive the applause of heaven. It's the approval of God on your life. And of course, Scripture tells us that every believer is already blessed because we have had our sins washed away by the blood of Jesus. And so when we follow the teachings of Jesus, we find pleasure in obeying the Lord's commands. And as the psalmist describes, our our steps will be cadenced by the applause of heaven. And our lives will reflect God's kingdom come. See, none of this can be found in in, in external circumstances of life. None of this can be found in what happens to us. It's about what's happening in us. And so think for a moment of the four groups within this Jewish circle that Jesus was speaking to during those days. You had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the the Essenes, (coughs) and the Zealots. And so even if you're not an, an, an official, socially recognized member of one of these political thought circles, you still kind of leaned one way. You still followed one line of thinking, much like our political or religious divisions today. And so the the Pharisees were the legalists. They were the ones who lived by the letter of the law. They did everything right as far as what was written on the paper. They dotted the I's, they crossed the T's. And and these effectively were, were, were men who looked to the past and they said, have we not Abraham as our father? We got the we got the, the prophets and the patriarchs. Who are you, Jesus of Nazareth, to tell us what we need to be doing? So they looked at they said that our fathers are our heritage. That's who we are going to follow. We got to walk in their path and and keep all of their rules right. In other words, they wanted to go back. They wanted to go back, and so they were the legalists. And then there were the Sadducees, and they they, if you were, were kind of like I guess the liberal thinking. And so they lived for the present. They said, whatever society needs, whatever, whatever they're able to, to believe and whatever they're able to, to grasp, then we'll, we'll reject the supernatural and we'll just, we'll just live with an intellectual reason. And so they rejected things like the resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And so then there were the Essenes, and these were the isolationists, those who secluded themselves from everything going on in the world. They put on sackcloth, they covered themselves with ashes, they built monasteries in the desert, and they worshipped God, and they cut themselves off from the rest of the world because they didn't want sin to encroach within their community. And so they believed that through isolation they could sanctify themselves and make themselves more pure before God. And so <coughs> then there were the zealots. And the zealots, they just want to fight everybody. They're the social activists. They're, they're the ones who, who, who picket and who, who are always making signs, you know, and out and, 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 and marching across the, the, the streets and stuff. They're the anti-establishment. They look to the future and they were reactionaries. And so they wanted to go against the enemy and initiate the kingdom of God by force. 
And if this seems like a dysfunctional group of people Jesus was dealing with, it's not much different today. It's really not. There are people who want to go back in the past and people who want to dilute the gospel and, and the gospel truth and make it appealing to those around them. And, and there are others who want to, to, to cut themselves off from the rest of the world and just build four walls and a roof and, and keep truth and, and whatever happens within it and until they die. And then there are the zealots. Zealots want to go at it through politics or reactionary faith. You can see them all over social media. And what's common about all of these? They're all external faiths. They're all outward. They're all affected by what happens around them. They all had a bit of truth, but none of them had the whole truth. And because the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, His Beatitudes, is saying to them, and He's saying to us, My kingdom is inside you. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is in your heart. And so the kingdom, remember, is where the rule of the king is carried out. And so the Roman governor Pilate, he was questioning Jesus after his arrest. And and he asked him, are you king of the Jews? And as Jesus replied, we heard earlier in John chapter 18 and verse 36, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my servants would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to Jewish authorities. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. And so it's an inner righteousness that God wants. And that's what Christ taught. Not an outward conformation or confirmation. It's within. So God's kingdom come is here today. It is now. And it's in the future. And so when those who have confessed Jesus as as Savior and as Lord, when we live our lives as if Jesus is Savior and is Lord, then that's evidence of God's kingdom come. And so Jesus is the authority and the guide for our attitudes and our actions and our relationships and our choices and our goals and our ambitions, our every being. And so to be poor in spirit is to abdicate the throne, to turn over the throne of our heart and kneel before King Jesus and before His throne. And when we do that daily, we're going to meet resistance. We're going to meet the the friction of, of living in this world, but not of this world, both from those around us who are loyal to the kingdom of this world and from within ourselves. We're going to feel that same friction. As we are denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following Jesus. read a story about a man who kept a white flag under his bed. And so each morning when his alarm would go off, he would get up, he'd pull that flag out, and he would wave that flag in the air. And he would say, God, I surrender to you. And we think about that and picture that in our minds. And we think, well, that's silly or that's extreme. But that's what it took for him to remind himself each and every day to surrender all to God so that he could receive all from God. And so he started each day reminding himself and professing to God his full allegiance. I think that's why Jesus said, I want you to pray this. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when you pray that, you're saying, God, I want you to rule my life. I want to listen to your Holy Spirit and accept His guidance, but I've got some control issues that I need help with. And He needs to help me with that. And when we submit ourselves 
to the Spirit of God, we begin to hear the same question in our life decisions. Is Jesus reigning over this? Is Jesus reigning over what you are watching right now on your screen, on your television, on your device? Is Jesus reigning over what you are reading? Is Jesus reigning over what you are typing? Is Jesus reigning over your job? Is Jesus reigning over the words you are about to say or the tone in which you're going to say them? Is Jesus reigning over the decision that you're about to make? Is Jesus reigning over the friendship that you're pursuing or the friendships that you've terminated? Is He reigning over that? See, thy kingdom come is to make the first consideration in every choice to be the kingdom of God. And that takes humility, humbling ourselves in the sight of the Lord, before His throne, before His will, giving up my throne and bowing to His, confessing that I'm operating on limited knowledge and limited understanding. But God is all-knowing and He is all-wise and all-understanding. And as we transition then from our way of thinking, from the kingdom of me, to the kingdom of He, then our steps will be cadenced by the applause of heaven. And our lives then will reflect God's kingdom come to the world around us. So what beat are you following today? What kingdom drum are you marching to? Is it the one of some lofty goal that you have? That's great. That's fine. But is Jesus reigning over that? Are you marching to the beat of some relationship that you're in the middle of, that's great, but is Jesus reigning over that? Is Jesus King of your life? Has His kingdom come into your life? If not, why not? Is it because of sin? If it is, He calls us to repent of that. That's completely changing our way of thinking and our way of, of, of acting, the way our move, move away from that and towards Him and with Him. Confess that sin. Ask His forgiveness. And He is faithful and true and will forgive. And if you are not a child of God, if you have not put on Christ in baptism, see, in order to enter the kingdom of God, we must die to the kingdom of me, of us. And we do that in death through baptism. As we meet Jesus Christ in the tomb, And we are raised up, just as He was, to walk in a new life with the gift of God's Spirit. Now a a resident of His kingdom to live and walk by His Spirit. If you're ready to make Christ your Lord and Savior today, to confess His name before men, what's keeping you from that? We're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement. If you are ready to walk by the step of Jesus Christ, will you come now as we stand and sing?